Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. This is Radio Influence. The future is now. With the Super Bowl in the rearview mirror, so much attention now shifts to the NFL draft and, of course, college football spring season coming up. I'm Scott Seidenberg, joined, as always, by veteran coach scout Chris Landry from LandryFootball.com. This is Rush the Field, the college football podcast for you college football diehard fans. And, Chris, I promise this episode is going to be more exciting than a 13-3 Super Bowl. Well, yeah, you know, a lot of people were not really excited about it. I enjoyed it. I thought it was uh, a lot of great defensive strategy. And the game was, well, I never got the feeling that the Rams were going to win it. There Certainly, it was close there to the very end. And so I count me as someone that thought more a lot more of the game than most people did. I think we're in the world where most people need to be entertained with highlight plays and scoring or else they don't think it's a good game. But I thought that uh, there's a reason why when you have good defensive performances, the offenses look bad. Uh, so, I, you know, I thought it was a little better than, than most people did. But yes, a lot of people thought it was a stinker of a game. Yeah, well, it was competitive and, I, and it really was a coaching masterpiece put on by Bill Belichick going up against Sean McVay. I spent a couple of days down in Atlanta on Radio Row and talked to some interesting people, including Tom Brady's agent, Don Yee, uh, who is now the founder of a new football league that's going to be targeting college players. I want to get into that coming up in a couple of minutes here on this episode. We also have our state of the program, which is the Kentucky Wildcats this week. But first, Chris, this week is the second signing period in college football. We have the early signing period. Now we have National Signing Day. And then, of course, uh, there are still players left out there that have not made their decisions. And maybe by the time you listen to this podcast, they will have made their decisions. But who are some of the key players that you find intriguing that they haven't committed just yet? Well, um, Ismail Sofser, a defensive tackle from a meet high school in Louisiana, is probably going to go to LSU, but it's down between LSU, Alabama. It's one of the top players in the country. Jerry Ely, a running back from Jackson, Mississippi, that was an Ole Miss commitment, likely going to Clemson. But boy, he is got really good Major League Baseball potential, probably even more so than than a guy like Kyler Murray. So we're going to have to watch his future. He's really, really good. Nick Cross, a safety from DeMatha Catholic in Hydesville, Maryland. Uh, no, it's not going to go to Maryland. His dad wants him to go to Penn State. He's interested in Florida State. That's going to be an interesting um, a, a decision there. Henry Tolto, a linebacker from the great De La Salle High School in Concord, California. It's an Alabama commitment uh, for a long time, uh, but he was worked heavily by Tosh Lapoy, who's no longer with Alabama, now the D-line coach of the Browns. So is Oregon in the mix. We're going to see how that plays out. Uh, Dewan Jones, a tackle from Indianapolis, Ben Davis High School. Lance Legender, from, uh, a quarterback from Warren Easton High School uh, in New Orleans. Darnell Wright, a big tackle from Huntington, West Virginia. Can Tennessee hold off West Virginia? Um, I think they can, likely will. We'll see. Uh, Jaquez Sorrell, a defensive tackle from Winter Park. Florida. Uh, it looks like uh, going to go to South Carolina. Uh, a really good athlete, uh, Kahir Elam, uh, a 6'1", 181-pound versatile player that's uh, likely going to Georgia. And then, you know, some guys – uh, he could could he could be a possible flip. Um, the Ohio State commitment, Doug Nestor, um, you know, as I mentioned, could could he maybe instead of going to Tennessee, maybe go to Ohio State? I mean, that's going to be real interesting in the in the the, the next uh, uh, couple of days to see where exactly these guys go. But the the majority of the guys have committed. And it's going to be less intrigue than obviously we used to when this was the signing day, because, you know, normally what you had was, you know, you had all these commitments, but then, you know, you, you had to sign them all. Now, you know, over 80 percent of the guys are signed. But this is going to be the type of day where you're trying to figure out the next 15, 20 percent of the players and whether it's going to take a certain class over the top or not. How much does the late coaching changes like USC and Graham Harrell and some other places around the country affect these kids flip flopping their decisions from when they committed to now the signing period? 
it has a lot, particularly for USC. In fact, of all the schools in the country that are more negatively affected by the early signing period, it's USC. USC traditionally, uh, historically, has always been a late signing class. If Why you is look that? At it, because they've always taken their time evaluating players. It, they, they are the school out in California. So, you know, if they wanted a kid, they could wait and wait and wait. Because they figure that every kid from most, there yeah, wants those, to go to yeah. USC. They're going to go. They're going to hold out. Yeah. Now it's different because kids don't know necessarily that USC is going to have a scholarship for them. So they'll go somewhere else. So they're having to adjust and they haven't adjusted very well, quite frankly. The other thing and this is a big picture that maybe we'll get into a, to another point in time. But some studies that are done, I, I didn't do it, but but it's some people that I'm involved with that have done some studies. The rate of youth football in California has decreased dramatically uh, more than any other state. I mean, by like 30 um, percent, you know, the the advent of the whole CTE issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's just more things to do out in California, more options or soccer. I mean, there's a lot of different theories, but that could have an effect. As we all know, there are oodles of players out in California. But, you know, how many of them, how is that going to affect the quality going going forward? And then you throw in the fact that USC's just not very good. They're yeah. not a very stable program. And I'm going to tell you what's really disappointing, and we'll get into it when we talk a little bit about the conferences what a very disappointing looking class for UCLA and Chip Kelly. This is not what I expected when he got that job there. I mean, they are off the radar, not even among the top 50 classes. And if you were to look at them, they're not even in the top seven in the Pac-12 in terms of recruiting classes. That is a little bit surprising and certainly going to be interesting to see how this has an effect on how those programs are perceived but, um, you know, it's interesting, but but it is something that I think is a little bit concerning, at least as it relates to those two programs. Well, why don't we start there in the Pac-12? Because we're going to talk a little bit about how the recruiting classes are coming in, heading into the signing period this week. And in the Pac-12, it's Oregon head and shoulders above everyone else. Mario Cristobal has done just a tremendous job of not just recruiting the area, but recruiting California, Southern California, Northern California. And he is now bringing in the big name recruits, the five-star, the four-star kids. They have separated themselves from the rest of this Pac-12. And if you're asking me which team I think has the best chance to win this conference, it's not going to be Washington going into 2019. I might ride with Oregon. Well, I think Oregon, uh, I think Washington's still the best coach program right now in the league, and they're very talented. Um, Their class is very good, Washington's. But um, Oregon, I think, is definitely got the most talent there. Kayvon Thibodeau is outstanding. They've got 25 commitments, 10 top 300. Now, we just talked about USC. Now, let's keep an eye that, that, you know, it's not like all doom and gloom. I would still put them as third best in that league, Washington being the second best. They've got 21 commitments, seven in the top 30. Right now, USC is right at about nine top 300 commitments, um, 21 total. So, we'll see who that how that race for the second in the league. That, that, that matter a whole lot but it's looking at filling needs in in my opinion getting the most number of top 300 players and usc might end up number two but washington you know a lot of it is filling needs washington does a good job of evaluating players and then coaching them up then then it comes to stanford and then after that i'm impressed with what herm edwards is doing at arizona state i think they they have a top 30 national recruiting class they've got uh, 20 commitments three in the top 300 uh cal's done a good job under justin wilcox they've got um you know 26 commitments a couple of junior college kids they've got a really good linebacker colorado's done a pretty nice job uh as, as you might expect uh, obviously uh you know you know a, a new coach with a really good recruiting background you, you give them another year and they'll really do a nice job with mel tucker um but it's a good group. 
disappointed in Arizona's class right now. Uh, Jalen Curry's a good player at receiver, but got one top 300 commitment, as I mentioned. Like uh, Sean Ryan of, of UCLA, the big tackle, but that's the only top the 300 commitment they have. And then, of course, we expect Washington State and Utah and and, uh, and Oregon State to to kind of bring down the rear of the league in terms of the overall, you know, top tier talent. Those are more developmental overachieving type programs, but uh, that's kind of how the PAC 12 is looking. And the only thing is going to be how strong does USC finish and whether they can end up with a top two class in the league. So let's work our way from West to East now, and let's go to the big 12 Battle between Oklahoma and Texas on top. You know, Tom Herman's done a great job. He's He's got a top 10 class coming in. But he, I, I think you'd put Oklahoma slightly above them right now, right? Well, I think it, a little bit. I think it's really close. I mean, Oklahoma has 24 commitments, 11 in the top 300. Texas has 12 top 300 commitments, 20, 23 total. Texas has done a phenomenal job. Tyler Johnson is a great offensive tackle for them. Um, really good classes, and they clearly separate themselves. I mean, there's not – there's TCU – has barely a top 30 class and that's the gap between Oklahoma, Texas and the rest of the league. So uh, Oklahoma's got an intriguing group. Spencer Rattler. Yeah. Great name. Uh, A guy that's one to remember. He is a quarterback that's has a chance to be an outstanding one. Obviously they get uh, Jalen Hurts, but he's going to be outstanding and they've got some big time receivers coming in. Theo Weiss and Trajan Bridges, a tight end Austin Stonger. So they've got some good looking players and Texas is doing a great job uh, as well. TCU doing a pretty good job. 24 commitments, none in the top 300 Baylor though, two top 300 commitments. Good group. Got 23 guys. Jacob Zeno's a good quarterback. Oklahoma State's had a decent class, 21 commitments, two in the top 300, which is good for them. Then West Virginia, never been a powerful recruiting group. New coach, Neil Brown, coming in, dip into the junior colleges a little bit. Only got 18, so let's see how they finish. 18 total commitments, uh, one uh, top the 300. Iowa State. You know, done a pretty solid job with their 20 commitments. Uh, they've got a solid running back in Darrell Brock. Not any top 300 guys. And, of course, Kansas State, new coach, not a big-time recruit. Of course, they've got Chris Heron coming in, uh, which is going to help uh, as Chris Kleiman's taking over. Texas Tech coaching change, not much there. Uh, only 15 commitments. And then Kansas is bringing down the rear with less miles. These coaches that, uh, you know, with an early signing day coming in, it absolutely completely kills recruiting classes for incoming head coaches. I mean, it just even the really good recruiters can't do a very good job. So if you're looking at it, you've got probably seven schools in the Big 12 that are top 50. But as I mentioned, it's Oklahoma, Texas in the top five and then TCU at about 30 if, if you were to ranked classes. Let's go over to the Big Ten, Chris, where Michigan's dealing with some stuff. Uh, Their running back, Chris Evans, is no longer with the team. Apparently, it's some academic issues. Uh, He said that he has no plans to leave Michigan, but right now he is not with the team. That was their leading rusher returning for this season. Pep Hamilton is no longer on their coaching staff. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had to get rid of him because of the coaches that they brought in, and they had too many assistant coaches, and when you're an assistant coach making over a million dollars, I guess you're able to be on the chopping block. So Pep Hamilton out at Michigan. But with all that into consideration, this is still one of the best recruiting classes in the country coming in. It absolutely is. It's a top 10 class. It's the best class in the Big Ten. They've got 27 commitments, 13 in the top 300. Daxton Hill, a Michigan commit, didn't go to Alabama, back to Michigan. Uh, Matt Dudick's done a really good job. He's the director of recruiting at Michigan. He's come in. This is a really good class because it's a deeper class. They've got an outstanding defensive tackle in Maisie Smith and uh, Christopher Hinton. So they've got some really good players. They've got more more players to add to it. Now, again, they've lost more players, so we need to keep that in mind. This Ohio State class may not rank as high, but it's really, really good. They've got nine top 300 commitments, so did they, they're right did up the, there. Did the Buckeyes take a hit? Because Urban Meyer stepped down, you know, remember, right before that signing period. Did they take a, any hit there? A little, a, a little in the transition, but – 
you know, they're not replacing as many guys. So yeah. their numbers are not, I mean, they only got 17 right now. So there, when, when you rank these, you there's different ways you rank it. You have to look at, you can look at it in terms of quantity, but you know, if you don't have as many needs, don't have as many scholarships, what you're looking for is quality nine top 300 commitments, are pretty good, but but keep these numbers in mind as I talk about top 300. Is we need when we get into some of the top classes, it's going to start you. Pretty good group with nine top 300 commitments. Penn State's got nine as well. Uh, they're ranked 13th, uh, uh, kind of a 13th, 15th type class. Uh, you you know Nebraska. Um, Luke McCaffrey, yes, another McCaffrey, and we're <laughs> going to talk to Ed. He is in this class, and uh, uh, it's it's a good group. Five top 300 commitments. I think the biggest surprise, positively, is Purdue. They've got 26 commitments, three top 300. They've got a really good defensive end, and George Carafalis is one of the best recruits they've had in a long time. And then you've got kind of what I call the traditional guys. Michigan State, they do their thing. They get 22 commitments, two top 300. Wisconsin, 19, two top 300s. Um, that's kind of what they do. Iowa, 20 commitments, two top 300s. Developmental programs. Minnesota, Rashad Cheney's a really good defensive tackle. He's a top 300 player. He's re- he's P.J. Fleck has upgraded their recruiting a little bit, but still kind of in that lower end Indiana, with two top 300 commitments, is doing a pretty nice job. Northwestern does their thing, get their type of guys, 18 commitments, only one. Um, the receiver, uh, Jensen Hooper-Price, is a top 300 player, big receiver out of Texas. But you have to get a special type of kid academically there. Illinois uh, would probably rank around 12. Um, you know, 12 guys, but they've got three guys in the top 300. So there's some positives there. Now, what may surprise you, hey, I thought Michael Oxley was a great recruiter, Chris. Well, again, uh, coming in late, he just it's going to have to come down to next year because this class is piecemealing. They've got one top 300, and they would rank just ahead of Rutgers in the Big Ten classes, which, you know, really struggle. Um, if you look, in at, look at them, I think there are 11 classes that are in the top 50. I think Illinois, Maryland, and Rutgers would fall out of the top 50 classes in the country. Well, you mentioned Luke McCaffrey, the younger brother of Christian McCaffrey, and also Dylan McCaffrey, who's at Michigan now, Chris. I had the chance to speak to their father, three-time Super Bowl champion Ed McCaffrey at Radio Row down in Atlanta. And here's what he said about Dylan competing with Shea Patterson coming into 2019. He's going into camp hoping to compete for the starting job and uh, get as many reps with the first team as possible. He had a good year last year when he got in, played really well, scored, I think, in every game except for uh, the Notre Dame game. But he came and got him a couple first downs, and, they, and then Shea came back after cramping and uh, played the rest of that game. But I thought he did well. He broke his collarbone late in the season, and uh, but he's fully recovered now and playing well and and uh, looking to compete. So he loves it. He loves it. Loves Michigan. Loves yep. his teammates. Loves his coaches. And he's having a blast. And you know, he'll go and compete for time on the field, but he certainly loves the situation. So there you have it. Ed McCaffrey saying Dylan is recovered from his collarbone and he is going Hello. to compete with uh, Shea Patterson for that starting job for Jim Harbaugh. Well, and it'll be interesting because, you know, little McCaffrey is a good dual threat quarterback. Josh Gaddis is coming in from Alabama. And of course, previous to that at Penn State, that's really adept in the RPO game. How much is... Jim Harbaugh willing to embrace that. Uh, I think that'll determine a lot. I think Jay Patterson's got a lot of ability, and I think he can help him. But I think uh, I think Dylan can as well. Um, I think it'll be an interesting spring, and I'm very curious to see what they try to do offensively. Uh, Scott, there is no question there's some talent there. And I thought that this defensive team was a really talented team, and they just missed the mark last year because in big games – their offense didn't show up, and their defense got just whacked against a couple of really good teams at the end of the year. And I don't think that was reflective of their capabilities because they just did not play complimentary football on the offensive side. And listen, it's not like Michigan needs to, you know, to be like a Big 12 looking team. But they need to get more out of the passing game, and they need to do a better job creatively with some things offensively. They've been stuck in a little bit of the Stone Age, and that's kind of limiting them, and that'll determine whether they can be a 9-10 win team or take it a step further. 
Well, let's move on with the recruiting classes coming into this signing period here. February 6th is the signing day. It used to be National Signing Day, but now it's the second signing day because we had the early signing period for the past couple of seasons. Over in the SEC, Chris, it's Alabama and everybody else. But Georgia's not that far behind nationally, a top five class in their own right, but Alabama's still number one. Yeah, just to put this in perspective, I was talking about some of these classes these, these previous, well, three of the conferences we've gotten into. And we'll talk about, I want to we'll talk about Georgia for a second. You know, we talked about some of these other classes, nine, 10, um, in, in the case of a Michigan great class, 13 top 300 commitments. Georgia has got 16 top 300 commitments uh, out of their 23 commitments led by Nolan Smith. Alabama has the best class in the country. Uh, 28 commitments, 20 five top 300 <laughs> i mean it's just like every player is i mean it is a top 300 player they're on a different level um you know if you're into that ranking stuff i'm not but i, I know people need to have some perspective of where they are that's how good they are and they're not done and they've got 28 commitments and you know only three of them fall out one of them's a kicker who happens to be the number one kicker in the country he just happens to be quote unquote a three-star um they've got some really loaded class and obviously they've made coaching changes they haven't announced a lot of them officially but they're out recruiting alabama is been phenomenal the best second best program in the country or the second best recruiting class in the country is georgia the third best texas a&m uh ranked third 13 top 300 commitments of their their 25 outstanding uh the level and the the broad strokes that they have done that jimbo fisher has done at a&m has been outstanding lsu another uh, top 10 recruiting class uh seventh eighth in the country fourth in the SEC, third in the West. That just gives you an idea. They've got the best running back in the country in John Emery. Uh, and it's just one of those uh, Daryl Stingley Jr., best corner in the class uh, in the country, good offensive line class uh, led by Cardell Thomas and Ray Parker. Florida with a good class, I think, you know, a top 12 class in the country, 11 top 300 commitments. Um, Auburn uh, has a really good class, you know, probably top 15 in the country, 18 commitments, 10 in the top 300. They're coming on nicely. Tennessee, we talked about them. This is a program to keep an eye on. Right now, they'd be seventh ranked in the SEC, 16th, 17th in the country. But by the end of the, the, the signing day, end of the signing period this week, They've got a couple of more guys that they can add to the mix. They've got nine top 300 commitments out of their 22, um, and, and they may get, as I mentioned, one of the really great players in the country that may commit to them or may sign with them. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out um, if they're able to go ahead and, and, um, and land the big offensive tackle from Huntington, Doug Nestor. So I, I think that that uh, it's going to be interesting to see where Tennessee ends up, maybe a little bit higher. Then you get into the programs that – you know, Mississippi State, which has had a top 15, 18 class, six top 300 commitments. Arkansas has had one of their best recruiting classes in a long time. Hunter Henry's brother, Hudson, outstanding tight end, kind of leads the way. One of four top 300 level commitments. Arkansas with a good class, four top 300 level commitments, heavily loaded on receiver. But they would be all in the top 25 classes in the country, Scott. And Ole Miss would be 11th at 24, 11th in the conference, just to give you an idea of where they are. South Carolina, a good class, may get a little bit better if they're able to finish off. Zach Pickens is a really good pick, five top 300. You know, they may be 10th, 11th, 12th best in the league. Kentucky off of a really good on-the-field year, still more like a top 30, 35 class, uh, one top 300 commitment. Uh, Missouri, um, also hit with some off the field issues this week that came out announced, uh, they're kind of bringing back the rear of the sec just ahead of Vanderbilt. Who's the only school in the sec that wouldn't rank in the top 50 Missouri would be kind of in the top, the uh, 35, um, uh, ranking nationally, just for perspective, Vanderbilt would be the only school. As I mentioned, big 10 would have uh, Illinois, Maryland, Rutgers, 
the Big 12, Kansas State, Texas Tech, Kansas, Arizona, UCLA, Washington State, Utah, and Oregon State, and every other school outside of Central Florida and Boise um, would, would not be in the top 50. The only school that fits that category in the SEC is Vanderbilt. Mm. Now moving to the ACC, it's Clemson, and then everybody else. Who is the next top next top team well, in terms I, of recruiting class? I, I want to yeah, put it in perspective, and here's what I like to do. And I understand this, folks. Notre Dame's an independent. Well, I'll always be an yeah. independent. But when I grade things like recruiting classes, you know, you 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 can't rank the independence because it's Notre Dame and really, you know, BYU. And, and so they're always going to be number one in everything. So what I try to do, you know, on LandryFootball.com is, is put Notre Dame um, relative to the others in the ACC when I'm ranking them as teams or recruiting classes. And they would be number two. Notre Dame's class is very good. I uh, got 21 commitments, number of guys in the top 300, number of, number of them that are early commitments. Clemson's class is the best. Um, they may add to it, obviously, with a great running back from Mississippi. 12 top 300 commitments. Again, put that in perspective. Clemson, 12, outstanding class out of 27. Alabama with 25, just to give you an idea how it is. Then after that, it would be Florida State. And their class has been solid, not anywhere near what it used to be when Jimbo was running it in top five classes for the most part, except for the last couple. He's They've got 10 top 300 commitments, which is not bad, 19 overall. So their overall numbers are a little bit of a problem there. I think the school that's impressed me the most in terms of you know, what they are and, you know, in a positive sense is NC State. I mean, you can make the case if you take Notre Dame out, of that's the third best class in the ACC, but it's a big drop off. They'd be a top 30 class, 28, 29, 30 in that range, 22 commitments, two top 300 commitments. Uh, Savion Jackson, the defensive end is outstanding. Um, they've got uh, CJ Clark as an outstanding defensive tackle. Um, you know, they've done a good job adding a couple of good running backs. They've got a junior college quarterback in Bailey Hockman coming in, of course, as they're losing Ryan Finley. Th- then you get Virginia Tech with 20 commitments, three top 300 level commitments, you know, a top 31 class in the country. The disappointing class, again, notice the theme, Miami, new coach, their class is not Miami-like. It would probably be, you know, top 40 class, 35 to 40. Jeremiah Payton is probably the top player, the receiver there, three top 300 commitments. But Manny Diaz, obviously off to a bad start. Miami has had 15 decommitments. Uh, It's unbelievable because of the coaching changes. So they've had a real issue. Virginia's done a pretty nice job for what they do. Jawan Briggs is a really good defensive tackle. They um, they lose a couple of receivers. They add a couple of guys. Uh, Dontavian Wicks and then Beal and Dorian Goddard are outstanding. It's a pretty good class there. North Carolina, Mac Brown came in a little late. The big thing for them, though, Scott, is they got Sam Howell away from Florida State. He's one of those 16 commitments that decommitted from Florida State. The best quarterback in the state of North Carolina, they were able to flip him around. They've got uh, wide receiver Kareef Brown uh, as well. Tennessee's gone into North Carolina and done a really good job. So Mac is known as a recruiter. He's hired good recruiters on his staff. But again, it is virtually impossible to have a really good class coming in this late duke of course did what they normally do 21 commitments none of them in the top 300 same with pitt they've got a good safety in brandon hill that's outstanding but not a top 300 player wake forest kind of same thing good receiver and nolan grulix um no top 300 plays boston college they do have one top uh, 300 player in the quarterback sam johnson but they do what they do they find their developmental type players do a good job georgia tech i think that um that jeff collins is going to do a good job but this has been a really rough recruiting class it's a tough transition and it's this will take some patience because the talent level is not going to be there to run what they want to run. They want to get away from the option. They're going to be very aggressive in the 2020 class, but this Georgia Tech class is not 
one of the top 50 in the country. Neither is Syracuse, although Mikel Jones is really good. Louisville brings up the rear in the ACC. So Wake Forest, BC, Georgia Tech, Syracuse, and Louisville are the only classes that are not top 50. Um, and, and if you're looking at top 10, it would be Clemson, Notre Dame, and Florida State, just more like top 15, top 20 class. Well, we're wrapping up the ACC. Let's talk about that news at Florida State. Willie Taggart announcing this past weekend that – Quarterback DeAndre Francois is no longer with the team. Now, this is a result of an alleged Instagram post that had something to do with uh, an alleged abuse with his girlfriend. But then she came out and said it's not true and it wasn't her and it was hacked. And this whole thing is just ugly going back and forth. What's the latest you're hearing on Francois and on Florida State? Well, listen, I, I'm not going to pretend it, no one really knows truly what happened or when, what did not happen. But obviously, um, they don't have um, a, a, a good situation going on in the program. And I think that off the field, there have been some issues that have bubbled up with Francois. And then they just lost James Blackman, so Bailey Hockman. And, uh, I, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. They are in a pivotal year. This is not out of the question that it could be two and done for Willie Taggart if it's a disaster year. I think he has to show some semblance of competitiveness, and it's not off to a good start. Uh, the recruiting classes I mentioned, it's okay. It's it's okay by Florida State standards. It's you know it's but but I think they're missing a lot of pieces. And from a coaching standpoint, they were out coached in just about every game that they played this year, and the talent level is not what it has been. And Willie is known as a recruiter, and if he's not recruiting top five classes in the country, I mean, quite frankly, you're not getting your money's worth from him because coaching on the field coaching and development of players is not his strength. So I've got real concerns about Florida state and I got concerns about their quarterback position going forward. Well, Chris, it's that time of the program. It's time to get into our state of the program in this week's school, the Kentucky wildcats. What's going on at your favorite school. This is state of the program on rush the field. And Chris, coming off a season in which saw them go 10-3, and ranked 12th in the country in the AP Top 25 Kentucky Wildcats. You know, it was one of the best years ever in Kentucky football history, and there hasn't been a lot of successful uh, tenures at Kentucky. When you look at their football program, it's not been a storied tradition, and we got to go back to the Bear Bryant days. And pre-Bear Bryant, there wasn't a whole lot. There was a coach in the early 1900s in Jack Wright that went to a 7-1 record in 1903, and Edwin Sweetland went 16-3 and in three seasons in the 1909 and 1912. Um, and, and the biggest thing that came out of that was the 1909 upset of the fighting Illini, which was a real power then. And the head of their military program uh, at the time, which is obviously real big and center stage on campus made the statement, boy, that team against that. They, they fought Illinois. They (laughs) fought like wildcats. And there became the name. Um, Prior to that, they, they didn't have a true name, the frontiersman and a couple of different names. They became the wildcats after that. Outside of that, they didn't do a whole lot. Then in comes Paul Bear Bryant. He was hired. He came to him from Maryland. Bear went to Maryland and spent one year at Maryland and had a fallout with the president there. So he comes over to Kentucky and he coached there for eight years and did a really good job. And it, the 1950 team was outstanding. They they lost the 50 Orange Bowl and won the 51 Sugar Bowl and the 52 Cotton Bowl. Um, and in the in in 1949, they were ranked 11. It went number seven, 1950. But that 50 team was the one that was really interesting because this was a, a, a team that Bear had that had a lot of good players in it. And it was it it ended up seventh in the country. Then they th- remember they would rank the teams and then the bowl games came after. Well, Kentucky ended up playing in the Sugar Bowl, playing Bud Wilkinson's Oklahoma team that had won 31 straight games. 
and they beat them. Uh, they beat them 13 to 7. And actually, one of the computer polls at that time, they're different, I say computers, it wasn't really computer generated, <laughs> but but it was uh, the, the, uh, the, the different polls that they had to rank them. There were about a dozen of them. One of them actually ranked Kentucky number one that year, although they don't claim it nationally. That was probably the best program. The 49 and 50 teams that Bear Bryant had were the best. And he just did a phenomenal job there. And after beating that Oklahoma team, um, they, they there were some polls that did rank after the bowls, or they weren't official. They ranked him in the top three. He was the coach of the year. But what happened there, and he had a great staff. Uh, Paul Dietzel was on the staff. Frank Mosley was on the staff. Jim Owens, a great Jim Owens was on the staff. He had great players. Howard Schnellenberg was a really good receiver for him. Jerry Claiborne, who ended up coaching at Kentucky. Jim McKenzie, George Blanda, you heard of him. He was was a player on that team. But this is where Bear Bryant kind of felt like, uh, and, and he could build a power at Kentucky, but there was the old story that after that season, Adolph Rupp had gone to the Final Four and won a national title. They beat Kansas State. And the the story goes, and I don't know if it's true or not or if it's legend, but it is. it kind of tells at least where Bear Bryant felt. They gave Bear Bryant a watch, a really nice watch. You won the SEC title. And then they gave Adolph Rupp after, after going to the Final Four and winning the national title – the keys to a new Cadillac. Uh. And, and, and I have a photo in, in, in my memorabilia room that has, and it's typical, it's got Adolph Rupp with his arms for a young Adolph Rupp. And then behind him, kind of looking over his shoulder, like uh, what you call today, what the kids call today, photo bombing. Yep. And there's Bear Bryant. I mean, he's, they're both in there, but he's clearly who's more important. And it was at that point that Bear figured it didn't matter what he did. You were going to always be second at Kentucky. So he goes to Texas A&M. And then Blanton Collier, it gives you an idea. He was an assistant for Paul Brown at Cleveland with the Cleveland Browns. He comes in and he had a really good coaching staff. On his coaching staff was Bill Arnsbarger, my mentor, the guy, the mentor of the 3-4 defense. Uh, a guy by the name of Chuck Knox, heard of him? Mm-hmm. Howard Schnellenberger. And some other guy on his coaching staff, Don Shula, may, yeah. may have heard of him as well. He was okay. Pretty good, pretty good staff, but he couldn't recruit very well. So after a while, uh, the, the administrators got a little tied up. Charlie Brightshaw era came in. He was an assistant under Bear Bryant. He's only 25, 41, and 5 in seven seasons. But he had one team, Scott. He called it the Thin 30. There were 88 players on the team when he got there. And he was a hard you-know-what that that learned under Bear Bryant. And the thin 30 was out of 88 players, only 30 stayed. Wow. So it was, it was, it was an interesting group. Then that led to John, the John Ray era, which took over in 1969. And he had some good defenses, but he couldn't do anything on offense. Then Fran Kersey comes in in 73 through 81. Uh, Fran Kersey comes in from Miami after Ray was let go. And then this, he ushered in what I thought was the next two best teams in Kentucky history, the 76 and 77 classes, uh, 76 uh, and 76, uh, 77 teams. Um, they, 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 uh, they, they were, they had to forfeit some of the games with some ineligibility issues, but they were really good four and two in the league. They came from behind and beat Georgia. Um, they had a 21, nothing win, uh, over North Carolina in the Peach Bowl that year, I remember. 77 was really good. The only loss came to Baylor in week two. They won on the road at Penn State. Joe Paternal, Penn State team, 77. They won on the road at a very good LSU team. Won on the road at Georgia. Beat a Vanderbilt team that wasn't bad then, and they beat a Florida team. They were ranked number six in the country. Really, really good team. So it was kind of the the two year stretch where it was really good, and then the the next you know the you know era came into when uh, Fran left was Jerry Claiborne, who came in and um, was really tough nut coach. He was on the Maryland staff and uh, uh, was uh, came over to Kentucky because Jerry actually played at Kentucky for Bear. 
he led the Wildcats to the 83 Hall of Fame Bowl and the 84 Hall of Fame Bowl. Beat a pretty good Wisconsin team in that bowl game, as I remember. Ramsdale Wright, good player. Had some good players there. Then comes Bill Curry. Bill Curry, run out of Alabama, takes the Kentucky job, the Tim Couch era. Um, and then his record was only 26 and 52. Didn't do a whole lot. Then Hal Mummy came in and the air raid offense. And Hal in four, Hal in four years, only 20 and 26. Got him on probation. But he did have a couple of assistants that ended up being pretty good. Mike Leach and Sonny Dykes. Then Guy Morris, who was the offensive line coach under Hal, was promoted. And Hal didn't uh, – uh, Guy, rather, didn't have a whole lot of success. Um, but the most thing he's remembered for, he he accepted an offer to become the head coach at Baylor after the 2002 season is he wasn't going to run out. He was most noted as the opposing coach in the Bluegrass Miracle game in which they dumped the Gatorade on him as they were going to win it in LSU under Nick Saban scored in the last play of the game. And – that that was ended a streak a streak of really bad football for Kentucky in a long time. Then Rich Brooks came in. He was a former Oregon coach. Did came in December of 2002. Did a really good job. Been with the Rams, of course. Um, he ushered that upset over Georgia uh, in 2006. They were ranked eighth in the nation in 2007. They lost to a good South Carolina team that year. Really good. Then, then obviously when he retired. Jerko Phillips, the receiver coach and longtime recruiting coordinator, was promoted up. He was um, a receiver for them, came in, and that didn't work out, didn't recruit very well. And then then we are where, where Mark Stoops came in, obviously defensive coordinator at Florida State, and it did a really good job. Neil Brown, who's now the new head coach at West Virginia, was brought in on Mark's initial staff to be the offensive coordinator, and he's built a slow program that they've done a good job of getting players, developing players, and had a really good season. The question is, is the expectation level for Kentucky is where they are now. Um, you know, the expectation is, well, maybe can they do it? Can they compete again? I, I don't think it's realistic. I think that, you know, going to bowl games every year at Kentucky is where you ought to be. And if you can get the right type of player where you can get four- and five-year players, you can have – every so often a year like they had this year where they can they can really compete. But you even saw it against the highest level of competition. They struggled offensively. So as good as they were, you could see that they were good to a point. When I think of Kentucky football, I, I think some of the great players, Scott, you know, you know well, before your time, but, but Babe Perilli played for Bear Bryant. He was one of the great quarterbacks. Bob Gain was one of the great tackles. Steve Mellinger, defensive end in the 50s. Doug Mosley, a good center. Howard Schnellenberger, people know him as a coach, who's defensive end um, for them. Art Still in the 70s, I remember, really good defensive end. Mike Pfeiffer came on to, uh, Pfeiffer came on to be a really good offensive tackle. Of course, you will remember Tim Couch. Uh, you will remember guys like Randall Cobb, you know, that have been very good. And remember Josh Allen because he's going to be a very high pick. Um, you know, you're looking at the best players. You know, guys like that, Damani Dawson, a great interior offensive lineman for them. Jeff Van Note, Dennis Johnson, Joe Fetterspiel, who played in the early 70s. They played in the NFL for a while. Frank LeMaster played with the Eagles really, really good. Um, you know, so it's a history that is one that is short on greatness in football, no doubt. But it is, I think, a place that's been proven that you can win. They do put a lot of money into their football program. Before they put their new center up, the Nutter Center was very good. Uh, their facilities at Kentucky, when I was coaching at LSU, was better than our facilities at LSU, wow. football facilities. So it was good. Now, they've since improved upon that. Now, LSU's facilities, everybody's facilities, particularly in the SECs, are really good. So Kentucky will put an emphasis on it. Now, Commonwealth Stadium has gotten better. It's it's not 100,000 seats, but they'll support Kentucky football. This year proved it, and they support it most years. Um, it's always going to be second fiddle to Kentucky in terms of expectations, but I think it's a really good program where you can kind of settle in. Mitch Barnhart's done a really good job as the athletic director. He's been patient with Mark Stoops, and as I mentioned, their recruiting class, good, you know, top 
35th class in the country, but it puts them about 12th, 13th in the SEC. So, you know, but that's okay. They've got to develop those guys and make the the two stars and three stars into four stars um, in three or four years. So it'll be interesting to see if Mark's able to to continue getting this program competitive on a year in year out basis. So what are we looking at them going into 2019? Just real quick, glancing at their schedule, they have eight home games in 2019. That's that's an unusually high amount. Uh, so it's a home heavy schedule for them. They play a couple of uh, MAC teams, but looking at their schedule, you know, you still have Florida, you still have Georgia. The Florida game is at home, but the Georgia game is on the road. So that's going to be tough between the hedges there. What are we looking at them for 2019? Well, I think, you know, you kind of mentioned the schedule in conference is going to be difficult. And I think for Kentucky, you always have to schedule well. I think the eight home games are good. I think playing max schools are important and necessary there because I think in in conference, you're going to have a hard time uh, winning. You know, they pulled the miraculous win or, you know, I shouldn't call it a miraculous win. The fact that they won was miraculous uh, by Kentucky standards. They don't beat Florida. So to win, to beat them, was was a big accomplishment to expect them to beat Florida next year and to beat Georgia next year uh, to beat maybe a Tennessee going forward uh, unlikely uh, just not likely those programs are a little bit better you know it's what can they do against Vanderbilt what can they do against Missouri um, what can they potentially do against South Carolina and their crossover game in the SEC that's going to determine the level of how good this team can be and winning against a couple of MAC teams which is not always a given uh, every year but winning those gets you to bowl eligibility and that's that's what you have to do and occasionally if you can get to that New Year's Day bowl like they did this year you know that's that's saying an awful lot um, I know that the excitement level once they got to play Georgia, and it was like that team, whoever won was going to win the East. I think we all knew that it was going to be a massive upset and it was going to have to be a bad day for Georgia, for Kentucky to pull it, uh, pull the upset. Because even though it was a great year, I look at it as an offensive deficient team that was very well coached, very good defensively, that had a lot of players, certainly you were at running back, and Benny Snell, and certainly some good defensive players, and Josh Allen that's going to go very high in the draft, that kind of led them. They're going to have to replace some key guys this year, and I think it's going to be a little bit of a step back next year. Well, Chris, next week I want to get into this new Pacific Pro Football League, which is targeting college players. Uh, my conversation with Don Yee, yes, Tom Brady's agent, Don Yee, who is now the founder of this league. We're going to get into that coming up next week. Plus, our state of the program is going to feature Central Florida and I want to go a different direction with that next week. And I'm sure you're going to agree with this. I want to talk about the, the group of five in particular and really why it's been so difficult and why it's going to get increasingly difficult for them to crack the big, you know, the all boys club, if you will, mm-hmm. of the of the power five and why UCF, despite going undefeated two regular seasons in a row, they finished 12 and one this past year. There was no chance for them to get into the college ball playoff and there's not going to be a chance for a group of five schools. So we'll get into that coming up next week. But this is a big week because of the signing period. And that's why you have to head to LandryFootball.com because, Chris, you're going to have all the updated information about who is signing where with National Signing Day on February 6th. Yeah, absolutely. Up right now on the website, uh, we've got the, the uh, some uncommitted prospects and where they could be headed. So check that out. And then obviously we've got a breakdown of all the recruiting classes by conference heading into signing day. And then as they are signed and we have the exact number and the exact names, and once they sign on the dotted line, we're going to have a breakdown and grade all the classes and tell and have all the players, which all the players are graded, but we're going to have them organized by team so that you can see how many players, blue graded players, red graded players, what those all mean. And we're going to have for a number of recruiting classes, we're going to have scouting reports on all the players that they sign. So it's a great opportunity to learn more about the players that are coming into your program. So look forward to that. Uh, it'll It'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, and not just recruiting. You go to LandryFootball.com, take advantage of the greatest postseason discount going on right now because you get NFL free agency, the NFL draft coming up, Super Bowl's in the rearview mirror. Now the attention shifts towards 
towards the NFL draft. So you want to keep it locked into LandryFootball.com for all the latest on that. You get all of it for less than a magazine subscription. Now with a great special postseason discount, you get new episodes of the Landry Football Podcast every Tuesday and Thursday, new episodes of Rush the Field every Wednesday, and sign up for the free War Room newsletter. You go to LandryFootball.com, and Chris, you just got to type in your email in, in the uh, upper upper right-hand corner, right? Absolutely, and we got a real nugget there or two every week that's not fit for publication, but you get some information. Last week, we gave you a, a little bit of an in, insight into how to chart the game uh, as you watch the Super Bowl. We have something every week that's a little bit inside, a little bit informative, so check that out. And we keep you up to date on what's going on in football, what's going on on LandryFootball.com. And as Scott said, uh, real easy, just go to LandryFootball.com, click on the War Room logo, send us your email. And we'll, simple as that, we'll put you on the um, email list to, uh, to get you the newsletter. Don't forget to follow Chris on Twitter at LandryFootball. You follow me at Scott's On Air. Rush the Field with me, Scott Seidenberg, and Chris Landry can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. Until next week, Chris. Hey, look forward to it, Scott. Uh, have a great week. This is a Crush Performance Quick Fix on Radio Influence. Earlier this year, uh, it was it was sort of announced through a number of different platforms uh, talking about the dropout rates in organized sport. And this came about with a conversation of childhood obesity and inactivity and, and gaming. And we're going to do a whole show on gaming. I think gaming can be great if it's uh, uh, put into context and managed properly. But, you know, why why kids aren't playing sport anymore? And so we did a great show in 2018 on why kids play. And one of the stats was the fact that the dropout rates in organized sport through, you know, the ages of 13, 14 and 15, 12, 13, 14 in that age group, uh, the dropout rates are as high as 70 percent. Some of the highest recorded dropout rates in organized sport in the history of sport. And we're going, okay, that's very, very concerning. But when you step back and look at those numbers, a couple of things you have to understand. Could those numbers reflect kids who are changing sports? Maybe they drop out of baseball because they want to play volleyball. Or maybe they're quitting basketball because they want to go into swimming. Or is it because that's a critical age for kids to start deciding where they're going to focus their efforts? School gets a little more serious. Kids start thinking about their futures a little bit. And frankly, sports starts getting expensive. So maybe the parents are saying, okay, look, we can't do it all anymore. So let's pick and choose what we're going to do. So our kids now just narrowing their focus from maybe playing two or three annual sports to two. Or are they at a level where, hey, man, I love baseball. I love hockey. I'm going to dedicate most of my time to hockey and I'm going to get into a summer conditioning program and I'm going to just play those other sports for fun with my pals. Well, that's not really clear in the research as well. Crush Performance with Jeff Crushell can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.